if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's precious word. Isn't it lovely to hear uh, the Bible being read in an Australian accent? Very nice to hear that. Um, I have a, a major confession to make today as well. Um, I've been feeling really guilty that we are skipping Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10. I apologize for that in advance. I was feeling bad enough about it before I came here this morning, and uh, I mentioned it to Matthew, Matthew Sleeman, and, and Matthew said, well, you know, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament. It, in fact, at Oak Hill College, we give it to beginning preachers, and we give it to people as a key theological paper to write out of it. So I just want to thank you, Matthew, for your word of encouragement, um, <laughs> just when I was feeling weak. Um, we call Matthew um, Barnabas among the trustees. He just has that special <laughs> gift. You know I'm joking, Matthew, don't you? Matthew's one of the loveliest men you could ever meet, so he knows that I am joking. Anyway, let's have our Bibles open, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. We will refer a little bit to the earlier passage as well. So big question today, how are you feeling about the church right now? Statistics tell us that churches in the UK have lost about a quarter of their attendees post-COVID. 
That's difficult for church members to take in, let alone pastors and leaders who are praying and longing for impetus in the local church. I know several church leaders who are just exhausted after having to improvise church for the last couple of years, learning how to preach in front of a camera and trying to offer some kind of pastoral care and communion to isolated saints. A recent survey from the Barna Group said that the percentage of pastors in America who are, quote, seriously considering leaving the ministry has doubled during COVID from 21% to 42%. So please be praying for your local pastor in your local church. He needs your prayers. And now, of course, the energy that had been spent just to keep things ticking along in church is being used to try and draw people back to church who have got used to TV church. And add to that, trying to sing through a mask and setting up chairs to be socially distanced has been like sticking a pin into a balloon as far as church atmosphere is concerned. It's so hard to welcome behind a mask. It's hard to love from two meters apart. It's hard to build relationships and to pray over Zoom, even though we thank God for the technology. Now, of course, there have been some positives as well. Many churches have reported new people attending who have been drawn to attend by listening online and watching online. A wider range of people have heard the gospel than ever before because it's been so accessible on the internet. And people are searching for answers, of course, and think, what's COVID all about? Church members have longed for real worship and intimate small groups in a, a deeper way because they have missed the sense of community that they had just taken for granted. But whatever positives there have been, church life continues to be a hard slog, doesn't it? And many smaller churches that were already struggling before COVID are just hanging on afterwards if they haven't shut entirely. The church has been at a low ebb and that is why we need to rediscover Paul's vision for the church that he sets out in Ephesians 2. Ephesians carries us beyond the day-to-day -day struggles of church life and lifts us up to heavenly realms to see the bigger picture, to see God's vision for his church. And according to Ephesians 2, the church is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. That's the big idea of this passage. That's the big picture that we need to remind ourselves of this morning so that we can recover our energies and renew our commitment to the bride of Christ. The church is the hope of the world. And Paul gives us three reasons in this passage why the church is the hope of the world. Firstly, he says, the church is God's vision for a lost world. That's verses 11 to 13 of the passage. The church is God's vision for a lost world. If you read the Old Testament for any length of time, you cannot ex escape the fact that it's very Jewish. 90% of the action centers around the small nation of Israel. And you're tempted to ask, well, what's happening in the rest of the world? 
while Moses is bringing the Ten Commandments down from Sinai, what's God doing in China? While David is establishing Jerusalem as his capital city, what's happening in Europe? Well, Paul is writing here to Gentile converts, and he says to them in verse 11, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that is Jews, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. In other words, as far as the rest of the world was concerned, it was this triple whammy. You were separate, you were excluded, you were foreigners. That was the state of humanity while God was working in Israel. It was Israel who had received the covenants, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, and so on. It was Israel that had received the Ten Commandments on Sinai. It was they who were circumcised, carrying that sign on their bodies that they were children of Abraham and in this unique relationship with God. Meanwhile, the vast sea of nations were separate from God's work, excluded from God's plans, foreigners to His promises, summed up by that crushing phrase, without hope and without God in the world. But all the while, says Paul, that that God was working exclusively with Israel, the prophets were predicting that God was going to draw the Gentile world to himself. That had always been the plan. These prophets pointed to the Messiah who was to come, and that voice grows as the Old Testament develops. Right back in Genesis 12, verse 3, which sets the storyline for salvation, we are told that an ancestor from Abraham's family line would bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So this story goes right back to Abraham. Then King David was promised in 2 Samuel 7, another key passage in the Old Testament, that there would be a king to sit forever on David's throne, and this king would not only rule over Israel, but over all the nations of the world. And Sam after Sam talks about this worldwide king. And then especially when we come to the book of Isaiah, we're told in Isaiah chapter 2 that all the nations of the world would flock to hear Messiah's teaching, Isaiah 2. And this Messiah is later called the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 42 onwards, which we know as the servant songs. And the servant's ministry would center around pain and suffering in that famous passage in Isaiah 53, which incidentally, a lot of Jewish synagogues still do not allow to be read out in public in case we get the wrong idea that this is talking about Christ. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And through his suffering, this Messiah would justify many nations, Isaiah 53, 12. The whole of the gospel is there hundreds of years in advance, 700 years before Christ even comes. The whole of the gospel is there, and it draws in all the nations of the world. And the prophet Habakkuk predicts the glorious outcome that through this Messiah, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In fact, the book of Jonah the runaway prophet, is a kind of polemic 
condemning Israel for not wanting the kingdom of God to spread beyond Israel to other pagan nations like Assyria and Nineveh, its capital city. And so all throughout the Old Testament, while God was introducing His covenants exclusively to Israel, the prophets were setting out a glorious future vision of how this Messiah would emerge from Israel. He would be a true Israelite, but what He would do would bless all the nations of the earth. And Paul now says, now that plan has come to fruition. Messiah has come, and verse 13 is key to this whole section. But now, says Paul, every time you, go, you see that word, but, those words, but now in Paul, you've got to watch out. This is one of the great but nows in Scripture. There are 18 crucial but nows in the letters of Paul. So Romans 3:21, no one can be declared righteous through the law, but now God has offered us a righteousness through faith. Romans 6:22, you were slaves to sin, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul keeps using this phrase, but now, in his letters to signify a major transition in the story of salvation. And Ephesians 2.13 is one of the biggest but nows. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This was God's vision all along, stretching right back to Abraham over generations to bring Jew and Gentile together through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is God's rescue package to bring strangers and aliens and foreigners who were previously without hope and without God in the world right into the center of God's plan and his kingdom on earth. And that's the church. What a story, what a wonderful story that you and I are part of this morning. We are continuing that story, which has resonated down through the centuries. Now, through Jesus Christ, the church made up of Jew and Gentile is God's vision for a lost world. That's what we're about. God has this plan to transform hopeless people from all across the globe and bring them into his new kingdom community. And Ephesians 2.10, just the end of the previous passage, ends with the words, we are God's workmanship. We are literally his work of art. The Greek word is poema. God is turning lost men and women into his poema, his masterpiece in Jesus Christ. And the chief courier for this glorious vision is the church, it's you and me. Notice that all the verbs in this passage are plural. In the West, we tend to see salvation as very individualistic. I, in my childhood in church, I can't remember the number of times I, I was told, my own and personal savior. Have you heard that, that before? My own and personal, which is true, of course, he is my own and personal savior, but he's our savior. And Paul wants us to catch the corporate vision here. The church is God's vision for a lost world. The church is a vibrant international community of people from different backgrounds, many of whom had no previous awareness of God at all, who are now becoming God's work of art. 
And I shouldn't say they, I should say we. We are the Gentiles. We are the foreigners who were previously excluded, but we are now part of the worldwide church of Jesus the Messiah. Isn't it wonderful those people who first brought the gospel to the British Isles? Maybe you're thinking right now the first person who brought the gospel to you. Maybe there are some here who were living a completely pagan life and then someone came and brought the good news. Isn't that wonderful? And now will you be that person to bring the good news to somebody else who is excluded? This is church. It's wonderful. It's God's vision for a lost world. Church, of course, may seem so ordinary as you put the chairs out on a Sunday morning, maybe in the local school where you're trying to plant something, trying to start something. But church is nothing at all that is ordinary. Church is the most extraordinary people movement in human history. We're part of it. And Paul wants us to renew our vision for what the church is and the unique hope that she brings to the world. The church is a glorious thing planned from eternity past by God the Father, predicted over generations by prophets and now alive and growing in our day. Don't lose sight of that this morning. If you are feeling discouraged right now, the church is God's work of art, taking godless, empty, hopeless lives and reshaping them into the image of Christ. Keep going, keep going. I wish we had satellite links this morning to Africa and China and South America to get a taste of all the cultures and languages who once were far away, excluded from Christ, but have now been brought near through the cross. More people have been added to the church over the past 100 years than in any other time in human history. But the majority of it now is in the global south. That's why we don't feel it very much in Europe. At the beginning of the 20th century, around 10% of all Christians were in the global south. Today, it's closer to 70%. The shift is massive and the growth is unprecedented. Are you celebrating that? Are your prayers filled with praise at all that God is doing across the globe? The global church is your church. The church isn't just the local body that you worship in with all its ups and downs. Your church is international. It's multicultural, like new wine bursting through the old wineskin of its Jewish roots. The church is alive. And it's God's vision for a lost world. And if we, if we could catch this morning the global scope of what God is doing, our hearts would soar. The church is bigger than you think. It's growing faster than you think. In places where previously were considered unimaginable territory for the gospel. I don't know if you realize this. I've been reading a fascinating study recently conducted by Gordon Conwell Seminary in the States. They've done a study from 1970 to 2020, and they were naming in this study the top five countries in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest. And when I read the countries, it just shocked me, but thrilled me. Number five is the country of Qatar, where the Football World Cup will take place this winter. The average annual growth rate for Christianity in Qatar is 7.8%. Number four of the top five countries, number four is Saudi Arabia, which has gone from 0.3% Christian in 1970 to 4.6% Christian in 2020. 
Number three is the United Arab Emirates. I mean, can you just imagine if we got some of those oil tycoons saved and funding world mission instead of buying Premier League football clubs? Wouldn't that be great? What a prayer. Would one person in this tent take it upon their heart to pray exclusively over the next year for oil tycoons in the Middle East that one of them would be saved and start funding world mission? Wouldn't that be great? I'm deadly serious, deadly serious. People who were far away, unreachable, are being brought near all the time. The number two country in the world won't surprise you, it's China. The average annual growth rate of Christians in China is 10.8% in that massive country. And China over the next few years will overtake the United States for sheer numbers of Christians. In fact, yesterday I was, I was speaking to the, the mission group, the brilliant people at base camp. All of them were coming together. And right next to me was a, a girl from China. She said, a hundred years ago, there wasn't a single Christian in my village. Then a Christian missionary came from Scotland, hip hip hooray. Somebody got saved, and now practically everybody in my village is a Christian. So I have come back to Scotland now. I thought, Scotland, where, where are you? I'm up in Aberdeen. I'm in Dundee. You're in Dundee? Yes, I'm working with Friends International, seeking to bring international students to Christ in Dundee, Central Baptist Church, where my good friend Jim Tarrant and Stuart Keir are. Thought, wow! And that's been happening all the time. Missionaries that were sent from Scotland back in 1910, there was a big missionary conference in Edinburgh that wanted to reach the whole world for Christ over the next century. Scotland was the biggest missionary center per head of population in the world. Now we need those missionaries coming back to us. It's been thrilling to see African missionaries coming to Scotland, Chinese missionaries coming to Scotland. It's great. May they keep coming and re-evangelize this nation. So that's China. Number one, could you guess the country in the world that is the fastest growing Christian population? You'd never guess it. Number one is Nepal. Nepal. I mean, it's one of the hardest countries in the world to access right in the heart of the Himalayan mountains. But Nepal has an average annual Christian growth rate of 10.9%. God's grace reaches the toughest places. Isn't that thrilling? You need to keep reading this stuff so you're excited as Christianity kind of disappears over the horizon in the UK. Let's keep it alive here, but let's give thanks for what God's doing globally. Through the blood of Christ, God is continuously bringing people who had previously no idea of his saving grace near to himself. And this was his glorious plan from all eternity. And we are seeing it with our own eyes. How privileged we are in our own day. We've seen 2,000 years of church history. Seen the church spread to every nation under the sun in a way that Abraham and David and the prophets could only have dreamed. We need to celebrate the global church. And actually, as you think about signs of the end times, and of course there are plenty of them, the number one sign that Jesus Christ is coming again soon is not actually wars and rumors of wars like we're seeing in Ukraine and so on. It's not actually what Revelation calls pestilence, disease, like COVID spreading across the globe. That's one of the signs, of course. It's not even the moral depravity that we see all around us. The number one sign that Jesus is coming is the growth of the church across the globe. It's unprecedented. And Matthew 24 says, this gospel will reach the ends of the earth and then the end will come. That's what's happening right now. And internet just means that it's accessible to more people now than ever in human history. Isn't that extraordinary? And we need to play our part here in the UK. 
We need to play our part to speed his coming, to spread his word. If God's plan has always been to bring the foreigner and the stranger and the excluded one near to himself through the blood of Jesus, then that should be the beat of our hearts as well today. You and I, wherever we're placed, need to reach out to the foreigner in our midst, to the refugee, to the immigrant, to those from a completely different culture. I had no idea actually that this passage would be straight after Krish Kandaya's lecture this morning. You know, as if God wants to say something to us here. God wants us to reach out to those from a completely different culture. We need to work hard to present the gospel to foreigners and strangers in a language that they can understand and adapt ourselves to meet them where they are. Don't expect them to come to us. Let us go to them. As Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So ask yourself this morning, who are the outsiders in your community? How are you planning and strategizing to reach those outsiders with the gospel? Does your church reflect the diversity of the community you live in? Or is there a people group in your neighborhood that the church has just ignored? Who are the foreigners? Who are the strangers, the excluded ones in your neighborhood? How are you going to make the the vision of Ephesians to come alive in your church? You don't need to jet off to China to bring foreigners near to Christ. China's doing just fine, thanks. But there are foreigners right on our doorsteps who are more ready to hear the gospel than you think. Girma Bishaw, a lovely man who pastors an Ethiopian church, he's leading a seminar here this week. Girma told me on Sunday that in London, he told me, there are more than 300 language groups in London alone. The globe is on our doorstep. John Stevens from the FIEC is a tremendous cultural analyst. He'll be doing the Keswick Lecture next week, actually. John Stevens makes the point that God is especially at work among immigrant communities in the UK. That's where God seems to be doing his, his best work in our nation, if I could put it that way, among immigrants. In fact, it's the number of immigrants coming to faith that are keeping evangelical numbers steady throughout the nation. So let's go where there is good soil ready to produce fruit. And let's remind ourselves, this might sound controversial to you, let's remind ourselves God's plan is not to save as many people as possible. That's not the plan. His plan is to save as wide a span of people as possible from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. That is the vision at the end of Revelation. We have an opportunity to do that in the UK now in a greater way than ever before. To plant the cross of Christ in communities and language groups that have not yet heard the name of Jesus. That's the call. And the outcast in your community may be the most ready to hear the good news of a God who wants to welcome them home. Are you ready to bring them back to God? Are you ready to learn their culture, to get into their way of thinking so that you can present Christ to them? And not clothe them in British culture, clothe them in the culture that they were born in. Because the gospel fits. The gospel fits in every culture. That's the beauty of it. The gospel fits in every culture under the sun. The church is the hope of the world. Firstly, it's God's vision for a lost world. 
Secondly, it's God's vision for a new humanity, a new human race. That's verses 14 to 18 of the passage. God's vision for a new humanity. God doesn't just bring us near to himself when we trust in the cross of Christ. He also reconciles us to each other. The horizontal is as much part of the gospel as the vertical. Right back in the Garden of Eden, two tragedies occurred when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Firstly, they hid from God in the bushes. They were alienated from their creator. And secondly, Adam and Eve were alienated from each other. There was a new strain in Adam's relationship with Eve that had not been there before. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. She took the fruit and gave it to me. Adam blamed Eve, and the harmony of the garden was destroyed. So sin displays itself not just in distancing us from God, but creating a strain in our relationships with each other. Don't we know it? God created us to live in community with each other, just as the Trinity lives in eternal, loving community. It's part of being His image bearers. We reflect God in His three-in-oneness as we build community together. So no wonder Satan wants to attack it. And there has been tension ever since the Garden of Eden. And in verse 14 here, Paul describes this alienation in a slightly different way. At the end of verse 14, he talks about the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is picturing the temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple, there was a wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts where only Jews were allowed to come. Gentiles were not allowed to pass beyond that outer wall. It was, it was forming the barrier that separated Jew from Gentile. And there were notices, notices on this dividing wall, written in Latin and in Greek so that everybody could understand them, saying, the death penalty awaits anyone who crosses this barrier. Now, that hostility between Jew and Gentile is symbolic of the rupture that lies at the heart of all human relationships. The dividing wall of hostility leads down the line to the divisions between black and white, between rich and poor, between male and female, between old and young, between educated and uneducated. We could go on and on and on. Our world reeks of the dividing wall. John Ortberg paints the picture of people on a plane a single metal tube flying in the sky, and yet even there, there is a curtain, sometimes more than one curtain to separate first class from economy class. We live with that. We are separationists at heart. We won't let anyone else into the carefully constructed walls of hostility that we place over our hearts. We are instinctively suspicious of each other, we gossip, we lie, we hurt, we become bitter, we accuse practically every day. The curse of Adam and Eve has fallen on us. But, says Paul, God is in the process of remaking the human race. That's how big Paul's message is here. Verse 14, for Christ himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
The church is God's vision for a new humanity. The cross of Christ has pulled down the dividing wall of hostility that alienates one man from from another, one woman from another. Verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. The ESV actually translates it, one new man. The church is a single, interdependent, totally joined together body, or at least it should be. This is so similar to Paul's body of Christ theology in 1 Corinthians 12. And how has Christ created this new man? Paul uses the word peace twice here in this passage. Verse 14 says Christ is our peace, not just that Christ brings peace. Christ is the embodiment of peace. Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. And as you imagine him spread-eagled on that cross, it's as if the cross in its very dimensions points to north, south, east, and west as his arms are outstretched, wishing to bring the whole world to himself. Verse 17 puts it in beautiful poetry. Christ preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and he preached peace to you who were near, that's Jews who became Christians. What a beautiful image. And in what way today does Jesus preach peace to Jew and Gentile, to people from all different backgrounds? He does it through the preaching of the church. That's what you and I are involved in. You or I are involved in the creation of an entirely new human race by the power of the Spirit. Is that your definition of church? Because if it isn't, it needs to become that. That's how wonderful this project is. You and I as evangelists today are preaching the peace one through Jesus' cross to men and women who were previously hostile to each other. And actually from this point on in the letter, there is no more them and they language. It is all we and us. This peace has been won through Christ's own body. That's how much he cares about our unity. His body was broken so that his body could be united. And verse 15 is key to what the cross has achieved. Christ has made Jew and Gentile one. How has he done it? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and requirements. Now, Brian Chappell in his commentary says, Paul isn't thinking here so much about the Ten Commandments as the law as he's thinking about the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, those awkward bits we don't know quite how to understand and how to, how to exegete for today. But those ceremonial laws were powerful. Those laws brought a clear distinction between Jews and the way they lived and Gentiles and the way they lived socially and culturally. Those ceremonial laws of circumcision and feast days and food laws separated Jew from Gentile. But Paul is saying here they have now been totally removed through Christ's death. But of course it took Jewish Christians a long time to get their head around that. The problem of ceremonial laws was a real bone of contention, remember, between Paul and Peter. Paul had to publicly rebuke the chief pastor of the church, Peter, had to publicly rebuke him for eating only with Jews and damaging what Christ had accomplished at the cross. Christ's cross brought a radical change to the way Jews related to Gentiles, culturally, socially, theologically, everything had changed. And Jew and Gentile now stood side by side as a worshiping community under the cross of Christ. 
And brothers and sisters, this radical one-man theology needs to permeate our local churches. It needs to permeate all the unwritten cultural rules that we adopt in the church that are just an offense to the cross where Jesus died. We must set status aside when we come through the doors of church on a Sunday morning. Lawyers sit together with factory workers as brothers in Christ, equal and united at the foot of the cross. Family rivalries are finished with. How often in churches do rivalries emerge? One family has perhaps made it big in business, and others who haven't done so well are jealous and suspicious of anything that the wealthy family does. So many of our churches have core families, founding families, good people, but the feelings run deep. And often the whole progress of the gospel depends on how those families relate to each other. I don't know if you've been in a church split. It's horrific, but often core families. Family pride often causes more friction in the church than theological disagreement. And sometimes... and. I was wondering, should I say this? Sometimes there is racism in our churches. Not necessarily overt, but subtle. Black families stay together. White families don't invite them into their homes and into their lives. It's all very friendly on Sunday, but that's it. And friends, if we really analyzed our hearts, we might be shocked to discover how much we like keeping to our own clan, our own friendship network, our own skin color and culture and socioeconomic background. We do it. We would never say it out loud, but it's in our hearts. And it is a slur, a damnable slur on the cross of Jesus Christ. Black lives matter. White lives matter. Asian lives matter. Eastern European lives matter. We are brothers and sisters in Christ bought with the blood of Calvary. There are a thousand different ways that rivalries and suspicion can emerge and we need to watch for them like a hawk and show forgiveness and understanding so that we can truly be all one in Christ Jesus. And that's not just a, a neat slogan we bring out once a year at Keswick. I mean, it's dead easy to be all one in Christ Jesus at Keswick for a week. At least I think it is. That's not where it's at. It's the day-to-day relationships in the muck and madness of church life, the pressure of church life. And if you recognize somebody here today from your local church, and you know, you know you have a strained relationship with them for whatever reason, why not make the first move to reconcile? They may have hurt you deeply, But Christ made the first move towards us. He first loved us when we were hostile, when we were his enemies. Make the first move. Swallow your pride for the sake of the cross. Sit down over a cup of coffee with humility to sort it out. If they don't want to sort it out, that's up to them. Keep the peace, says Paul, as far as it depends on you. Takes two to tango. And perhaps as you're having this cup of coffee, you might need to hear some home truths that you didn't realize, and you may need to absorb some criticism that you think is unfair. 
because you are more passionate about reconciliation than you are in winning arguments. Break the ice and silence the accuser. The Apostle John said in his typical blunt way, you can't love God and hate your brother. In other words, if you claim to worship God while holding a grudge against your brother, then your worship is false. Matthew's gospel says, leave your worship gift at the altar. Leave it there if you realize that you've got something against somebody or they've got something against you. Leave it there. God doesn't want your worship until you go and get reconciled. And after you've been reconciled, you can come and worship with a free heart. Jesus died to make us one, and God will honor any move that you make towards reconciliation. It is a victory for the new humanity that Jesus died to create, much bigger than we think. And of course, there are lots of positive ways in which we can express this radical one-man theology in the church. One powerful way that I have experienced is, is the special needs group in our church. When I first came as a pastor to Aberdeen, to my shame, I was pretty ambivalent about whether we needed a special needs ministry. But that special needs group has become such a joy in our church, so much so that we call it the celebration group. Do you like that title? The celebration group. That's our special needs ministry every Sunday. Barry and Neil and Craig and Violet, they give you the warmest greetings of anybody in our church on a Sunday. I was thinking, do I, do I shake hands? Do I hug? Neil's just straight in there. And it's lovely. It's lovely. I miss them. I miss being away for the last couple of weeks. The celebration group sit on the front row in reserved seats. It's the only reserved seating we have in the church. And then James comes up and he plays his guitar at the front. We're making sure he's not plugged in. <laughs> but frankly, whether James is in tune or not is totally irrelevant. The fact that James is up there says, we belong here. We are welcome just as we are. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says quite clearly, honor, honor the less presentable parts of the body. Treat them with special honor. There's a theology of special needs just right there. And I have to say with great sadness, there are folks that have come to our church, been part of the celebration group, the previous church they were at, they come and say, the pastor said to me, we don't do special needs here. What? Jesus does special needs, so I better do it. I better get with the program. That's why we're so thrilled at the Count Everyone In program that we have here. And Prospects, we do a lot of work with Prospects in Scotland, working with special needs people and making them feel part of the body of Christ. In fact, I was amazed recently. There was a non-Christian husband who we were praying for to come to church, and he, he did come to church. But I was slightly, should I say, nervous when he came because I had one of those passages that you wouldn't choose if there was a newcomer coming to church, full of sin and wrath and judgment, all that kind of stuff. If you could choose a passage that you felt was inappropriate, it was this one. But this visiting unbeliever noticed right away the celebration group in their reserved seating on the front row of the church. And then when they left the church for their studies, they were giving high fives to everybody in the congregation as they went out. And that husband told his wife how he was touched by the love that he had seen there. He had never seen love like that. 
And it helped him listen more intently to a very hard-hitting message about sin and wrath and judgment. Brothers and sisters, love is our number one evangelistic strategy in the church. People will climb a mountain to be loved. They'll swim an ocean to be accepted. And if we can model the countercultural love that Paul is calling for here and break down whatever wall of hostility is in your church, and every church has different ones, then people will come in and they'll long to be part of your community and they'll walk through the door and they will say, God is in this place. The body of Christ is a very special place to be. We come together as brothers and sisters in Christ under the banner of the cross. And Paul makes, I think, a very important point in verse 18. Verse 18 says, the Gentile believers who were late to enter God's saving plan. God worked with Jews for centuries. The the Gentiles were the latecomers. But those Gentiles have exactly the same access to God. They're in exactly the same status with God as Jewish believers. Paul says, for through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit. What's Paul getting at here? Well, he's basically saying there are no second-class citizens in this new human race. Maybe you have no Christian background yourself, and you're here at Keswick. You've got no real Christian heritage, and you feel that you're far behind other believers who have been born and brought up in Christian families, and they know deep theology, and they can construct theologically rich prayers. And when you hear their three-point prayers all beginning with P, you kind of think, I'm never going to pray in public here. But if you're a brand new Christian, A, thank you so much for being here. Keep coming to Keswick. But you have exactly the same access to God, exactly the same status with God today through the Holy Spirit that the greatest theologian in your church has. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. You have the same Holy Spirit living within you as the Apostle Paul had. You are as much a child of God adopted into his family since before time began as Moses or David or Peter. We are all one in Christ Jesus, equally chosen, equally prized, equally loved, and heading for an inheritance prepared for us since before time began. Don't ever lose that vision in your local churches. The church is the hope of the world. It's God's vision for a lost world It's God's vision for a new humanity. And finally, and and briefly, it's God's vision for a holy temple. That's verses 19 to 22. I wish I could spend more time here. It's God's vision for a holy temple. Church is not a physical building, as in the question, are you going to church this morning? Church is not a Sunday service, as in the question, what time does church start? Church is not a duty, as in the comment, I haven't been to church for a few weeks. There's actually no such thing as going to church. You are church. Church is a community in which God dwells by his spirit. God chooses to make his home to reveal himself among his people. If you look at verse 21, Paul says, In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Paul's not talking here about a physical temple. He's saying that the people of God in the New Testament perform the same function as the temple in the Old Testament. People now are a house for God. You'll remember the temple in Jerusalem. That was the place where the invisible God chose to reveal himself. He displayed his glory. He revealed his character and ruled over his people from the temple. 
So that even when Jews were exiled in Babylon, they kept on looking back and praying towards the temple. Those days are gone now. Now we together, as the people of God, are the place where God has chosen to reveal his glory. We are a living temple. God has chosen to put his throne in the middle of this gathering of people. The church that you and I are a part of is a sacred mystery. It is a holy temple. And notice, Paul points to two basic building blocks that need to be in place if the church is to please God and give him the glory he wants us to give him. Verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, the apostles and prophets were the men who brought the divinely inspired words of God that make up our Old Testament and our New Testament. In other words, Holy Scripture comes from the revelation God gave to the apostles and prophets, from Moses in Genesis to John in Revelation. So if the church is going to be a place where God is pleased to reveal his glory, then she must be built on the word of God. The preaching and teaching of God's word is the essential prerequisite for a church to be a holy temple in which God lives. If a group of Christians are meeting together, but the word of God is not at the center of what they're doing, if they're just singing a lot, or giving punchy inspirational talks that are removed from Scripture, then God will not reveal himself. His word must take center stage. And please don't confuse an emotional buzz, a feel-good factor, with the revelation of God through his word. You can go to a concert and get an emotional buzz if you want. There are lots of pastors, I think, today who are trying to build churches on hype rather than the word of God, and those churches will not last, even though they're popular for a while. Right at the heart of the ancient temple was the Holy of Holies. And at the heart of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, the very center of the center of Israel, there were two stone tablets on which were written the very words of God, the Ten Commandments. And that was a sign for Israel that God ruled over his people through his word. And that word must be at the center of the worship life of his people. The book of Numbers, in fact, it describes the camp of Israel. They were all camped around this central tabernacle, and the central part of the tabernacle was the Word of God. And unfortunately, 150 years of liberal Christianity has removed the Word of God from the church, and that is when a church stops being a church. That's when a church gets its candlestick removed. There's lots of Church of Scotland churches out there, lots of Anglican churches out there, lots of Methodist churches out there, lots of Episcopal churches out there that are no longer churches. They're still getting on with their normal activities, but the Word of God's just disappeared. The Word of God forms the foundation of the church. And Paul then mentions the second building block for the church. Verse 20 says again, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone in a building was crucial. The architectural unity and symmetry of the whole building was dictated by the shape and placement of the cornerstone. Everything else was built around the cornerstone. All the other stones in the building had to be adjusted to fit in with the cornerstone. And there's a warning here, brothers and sisters. It is perfectly possible 
to fill our minds with the word of God every week, but not allow that word to shape and transform our hearts until we become like Jesus Christ. That's what these core issues are all about. Hearing God's word must lead to becoming like God's son. If it doesn't, we haven't really heard God's word. And as we're becoming God's son, we then go and serve God's mission. The word must shape and transform our hearts until we become like Christ. I was hearing recently of a man say, I won't mention the church. He says there was a church and for 20, 25 years we had some of the best expository preaching in the country. And no one was being changed. That wasn't the preacher's fault. The congregation had come to worship good preaching rather than become like Jesus Christ. You'll remember Israel was accused of being deaf to God's voice. That's not because they didn't have enough preaching. They were saturated with preaching, devoted to memorizing large chunks of the Torah. But they weren't ready to obey, to be humbled and rebuked and shaped by the word of God to be people whose hearts were set on fire for the Lord. That's the number one biggest danger of the Keswick Convention. Keswick is chock full of biblical preaching. Praise the Lord. That is wonderful. But we are not just here to fill our heads with knowledge, but to be trained and sharpened until we become lean, sharp, focused disciples of Jesus Christ. If I could put it this way, there is no point in knowing how to outline the book of Ezekiel or name all the titles for Christ in John's gospel if we don't look very much like Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone whose image must be stamped all over our lives. Remember what Mahatma Gandhi said. Mahatma Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount, loved the teaching of Jesus, and he famously said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the last day, we will not be handed an exam paper on theology. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, for example. It's just slowly sinking in, isn't it? When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, God will look at our hearts and he will simply assess how much we remind him of his darling son. Do I think like Jesus? Do I face suffering like Jesus? Do I love lost men and women like Jesus? Do I go away to a quiet place and pray like Jesus? Do I sense the joy and fullness of the Holy Spirit like Jesus? Do I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus gave to me? Lord, help me to be so fed up with just hearing your word that I'm anxious that I'm on my knees every day that as I hear the word, I might become like Jesus Christ and I might serve your mission. That's what it's all about. The church is the hope of the world. It's God's vision for a lost world. It's God's vision for an entirely new human race. And it's God's vision for a holy temple built on his word and shaped in the image of Jesus Christ. Let's stop going to church. And let's start being church. Amen. Amen. 
That's it done, no popping places. As Alistair Begg said last week when he was being clapped, this is not America. <laughs> Let's just take a little moment of silence now. Think to yourself, what's God been saying to me today? What am I going to do about it? And I'll pray for us all, and we'll sing our closing song. Just a moment of quiet first. Father, thank you so much for the peace that Jesus Christ has won for us through his cross. Thank you that his, his spread-eagled arms are calling north, south, east, west together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have become part of this church, thought up in the sacred councils of the Trinity since before time began, and now we're walking in its history. We are part of its living history. And Father, help us to reach out to a lost world. Help us to think about the foreigners, the strangers, the excluded ones in our community. Help us to build bridges to them, to speak the gospel in their language so that you might continue to call those who were without hope and God in the world and bring them right into the good news of Jesus Christ. Help relationships to be healed in our churches. May they be healed even today. Father, help us to make the first move as Jesus did in, in coming from heaven to earth. Surely we can go to a coffee shop with a, an unfriendly Christian. Lord, help us to to do what we can to provoke the reconciliation that the cross merits. And Heavenly Father, will you build us together to be a holy temple? Not just people who hear preaching after preaching after preaching and then go home and forget the challenge. But Father, people who are hearing your word, becoming like your son, so that we might serve your mission and build your church until Christ comes to claim his bride for himself. We pray this for Jesus' eternal honor and glory. Amen.